If you would, open in your Bibles to our Old Testament passage first, our main text this morning, and that will be from the book of Genesis, chapter 45, verses 1 through 14. Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near to him, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors." So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and that all you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his, his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed his, all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. That's our Old Testament reading. If you would, um, uh, advance over to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. Acts 7, 1 through 16, we'll be reading from the beginning of Stephen's speech. Acts 7 beginning in verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge that nation they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant 
of circumcision. And so Abraham became father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. God's word, you may be seated. Well, for the second message in a row, I'm introing with another Tom Hanks film, Forrest Gump, 1994 Best Picture, about a slow-witted character from Alabama who never regarded himself at all, disadvantaged. There's a message and a theme becomes quite prominent toward the end of the film when Forrest waxes elephant with metaphysical insight. Standing over his beloved Jenna's grave, he laments, Jenna, I don't know if Mama was right or if, if it's Lieutenant Dan I don't know if we each have a destiny or if we're all just floating around accidental life on a breeze. But I, I think maybe it's both. Maybe both is happening at the same time. There is something inscrutable, mysteriously inexplicable between the two wills, divine and human, and it is both. The scriptures affirm both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It is both. And we come today in our fast sprint to the end of Genesis. One of the classic text examples of this in Genesis 45 verses 5 through 8. Joseph says to his brothers, Now, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you 
to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Pray with me. Father, we come to a conversation, a study, a text with this truly inscrutable, mysterious, inexplicable combination of wills. We need your help as we venture through almost five full chapters. There is so much here. I would not, would not be overwhelmed by the amount but ask for grace to lock in on the essence and particularly for where we struggle in the case of sinful actions, how in your providence, which we have just confessed and declared, somehow you are able to make all things work together for good, even the worst of things, even those somehow in our own experience. Help me, Lord, I pray, as we work through this text today, to receive all that you have for us, to be built up in our faith and encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you see the balance? You sold me. Human choice. God sent me. Divine plan. Joseph is particularly emphatic about the latter. Three times here. He emphasizes especially in verse 8, the role of the providence, God's plan related to severe famine threatening blessing his family. Look at verse 8 again. It was not you sent me here. You sold me. But you didn't do it. God did it. Now, the startling aspect about this balance is the moral nature in this instance of the human side. 
The brothers' actions were despicably evil. They heartlessly sold daddy's favorite into slavery and then fabricated a bloody tale for their father, alleging Joseph's demise eaten by some wild animal. Genesis just keeps hammering away at this theme. No matter how grave the threat to God's plan, and we've said before, the threat of threats is the human sinfulness and brokenness of his own people, no matter how grave, The plan that he has for bringing a saving offspring, Genesis 3, 15, 12, 2, and 3, God always remains in control. His redemptive saving purposes cannot be thwarted. So here's my main idea, again, as we try to capture a major amount of the closing chapters of Genesis. God uses even our evil actions to ensure the success of his blessing plan. By the way, the reason I love being part of a confessional church and that we take a portion that fits the text and look at it, wrestle with it, recite it. When somebody tells you they don't have a systematic theology, they don't have a way for categorizing Bible doctrine like the confession does, then you should be ready. They're about to slip theirs under your door. Something like what we read in the chapter on providence captures what is being taught here in Genesis. Even the evil of his own people, somehow God uses to ensure the success of his blessing plan. But here is another part of the balance, this inexplicable mystery that in that, for his broken people, part of his saving plan for those of us with faith in Jesus is to transform us over time, to turn us into a more godly people. Here in this section, we look at three different journeys to and from Canaan and Egypt. 
and Joseph's brothers here. Here is good news for you who struggle with change, who think about the worst slip-ups in your life. The men on display here, the heads of the tribes of Israel are not the same men that we saw in 37 and 38. God has been working all the time in their lives for these dramatic moments when Joseph will reveal himself and the truth comes out about what they did, who they are, and where they're headed. What I want you to see today are four principles related to our sin in the comprehensive wonder of God's sovereign plan. Here are the four, then we'll take them one at a time. Guilt in ourselves must be owned. Change in behavior must be evidenced. Reconciliation with others must be pursued and promises of blessing must be trusted. Do do, do you ever wrestle and wonder, God, is there enough change? I've got got an illustration in the last message in Genesis from um, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood movie. At least it's not Tom Hanks next week. Where at the end of the film, I don't want to give too much away, he asked his wife after his cancer diagnosis, am I a sheep? Is there a one of us? Doesn't sometimes, is there enough? If, if, if this kind of thing is operative, with all your issues, all your faults, all your struggles, if there's some ownership, some evidence over time, not the same guy, I'm not the same gal. If, if peacemaking matters to you, reconciliate one of the great stories in the biblical record of reconciliation. I'm Joseph. Come here. Let me weep all over your necks. Some pursuit of, as far as it depends upon you, of peacemaking, reconciliation, as far as God may grant it, and a clinging to his promises, especially, I'll be with you wherever you go. Those are the things sheep are made of. Those are the kinds of things Pastor Jim will pray for and preach about and lay down his life for you. 
over the next how many months and years, God makes friends. First, guilt must be owned. Guilt in ourselves must be owned. The contrite in heart, God will not despise. But the haughty, the proud, he regards from afar. Left off last time in 41, Joseph made vizier of Egypt. From prison to palace, having interpreted Pharaoh's two dreams and having outlined a plan for handling the crisis of world famine, he now reigns in the number two spot as governor of Egypt. He stewards vast resources for the starving people of Egypt and Canaan. In chapter 42, Jacob, blessings bearer number three, learns of food in Egypt and dispatches all his sons, save one. Can't have Benjamin, Joseph's full brother, and the remaining son, as far as Jacob knows, of favored wife, Rachel. The rest of you sit down to Egypt and buy food for the clan. And upon arrival in God's providence, Joseph recognizes his brothers. But they don't have a clue about him after all this time. And so imagine, imagine you're Joseph, and the story is still so much a part of who you are, and suddenly your brothers are on the doorstep, and they all bow. And you think, I had a dream. I had a dream. And I told you guys about it. Well, he's, all that's going on in his head, because he's not, he's not letting anybody know right now. He sees God's hand. They do not yet. Now look what happens in Genesis 42, verse 7. Genesis 42, 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. You guys are spies. Put them in jail. Three days. Got to imagine. Let me give you a little taste of your own medicine. I don't think Joseph's acting vengeantly. She fears God. By his own mouth, Genesis 42, 18. And oh my, does he feel deeply and passionately for his brothers. Joseph is a man of sorrows, a man of tears. He weeps for them. No, 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 no. There's a method to his madness. This man, in the crucible of affliction, is wise. 
on so many levels. He knows all the chiefs will bow to him. Benjamin still has to get to Egypt. He's not here yet, and there's more information to be gained about the whole situation. So he acts his part of controlling governor to suit his purposes. Go home, he says to them, fetch your brother to prove your honesty. Simeon will remain here, my hostage. Now that's the whole setup for my main first point about change. Look at Genesis 42, 21 to 22. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, the firstborn, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They learn a lesson we all must understand about God's justice. He will render to each one according to his works. Romans 2.6. Marveled here in God's love for these men as he awakens their conscience. to the wrong they have done, the guilt with which they have lived for many years, and they confess the truth. How tender is your conscience? How sensitive is it? Shift. Puritan John Trapp called a tender conscience a good gift, God's spy and man's overseer. God uses even our evil actions to ensure the success of blessings planned, and part of change is guilt owned. Don't leave today if in the preaching of this word through this flawed servant, the the spirit is saying, hmm, hmm. The gospel waltz is always in order. Repent, believe the truth of the gospel, and obey anew and afresh. Guilt owns. Second, change has to be evidenced. The end of chapter 42, the brothers return home with grain, and inexplicably, all the money that they had paid is back in all of their sacks. Of course, Joseph commanded that. Jacob learns of Simeon, he is once again crushed with grief. 
Reuben says, let's go back, let's take Benjamin. And Jacob says, not on your life. And the firstborn's favor evaporates. Because God has another plan about whom he chooses to be blessings bearer into the future. It won't be the one you might have thought. Reuben's fading. Jacob says, no way. We'll make it work. But before long, chapter 43, the grain runs out. Famine threatens again. Judah. Remember him? Off the rails. Abandon the family in 38. Take a Canaanite wife. Judah's back and begins to take ownership of the clan leadership. Don't tell me you can't find your way back from major failure. Judah's in the Bible. Jacob sends Judah and the rest, along with Benjamin, away with gifts, twice the money, and prayer. Genesis 43, 14, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. They make it back to Egypt, a stunning turn of events. They're before Joseph. Have them come to my house. And they fear the worst because the jig is up about the money. Again, they still don't know who he is. But Joseph actually shows them hospitality. He entertains them. And he blesses Benjamin, weeps again in private, and then feeds them, arranged by birth order. That had to just blow their minds. How did he know that? And then another stunner, working down the line. Here's your stuff for eating. Here's your part of the feast. Here's your part. And oh, young man, five times for you. The youngest is blessed with five times. Favoritism again shows itself. Joseph's right, and it doesn't phase the brothers. They drank and were merry with him. Significant? How much? I don't know, but maybe, maybe they're different. Maybe God's working change and they can be trusted. But another more taxing test must be administered. If we are to be sure there are changed hearts, not the ruthless siblings of the past, Joseph says, send them on their way, give them all the training they need, But in the youngest, put my silver cup. They head off before long down the road. The servant tracks them down and says, which of you stole the silver chalice? My master's chalice. How dare you? And they are astonished and protest, assured of their innocence. They offer the death 
of the so-called perpetrator. And slavery for all, the servant says, no, the guilty one will be the servant. That's enough. They are so certain of their innocence, they all drop their sacks, open them up, one by one they're empty, and then Benjamin has the thing in his sack. How appalling. How can this be? Now look how they react in chapter 44, verse 13. This is huge. They tore their clothes. And every man loaded his donkey, and they returned. These are the same men who stripped Joseph of his and abandoned him in the pit and said, good riddance. They will not do that with Benjamin. They rend their own clothes, saddle up. We will go back and face the music along with Benjamin. However, this thing has happened. They are indeed not the same men. Enter Judah again. He shines in chapter 44. He acts as spokesman with the longest speech in all of Genesis. Starting in verse 18, all the way to verse 34. This is not... I'm not the same man. I'm almost 66 as I was at 36. I'm not. Thank God. You don't have to be the same woman the same man that you feel like you are today if shame is the base of your being. God's greater than that, and Judah is your template for hope. For look at these words from this man's lips, starting in verse 30. Now, therefore, speaking to Joseph, about what will happen if Benjamin stays and they go back. As soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he'll die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, your father, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became I became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Now, the, the, the compassion alone that Judah has for daddy, after what he did before, is marvel enough. But don't let it be lost on you. This is the first reference of human substitution in all the Bible. 
I, I will take his place. Let him free. I'm your man. Judah, whose line becomes the line through whom the lion of Judah will come, who will say, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. And you and your shame and your fault go free because she said, I will take your place. And that's where change comes from, dear one. That's where change comes from. So loved, so championed, so cared for, he has laid down his life. Greater love hath no man that he lays down his life for his friends. That's how you go from disloyalty and betrayal and sin to loyalty and steadfastness and leadership and love and truth. They have brought forth fruit and keeping repentance. And that's all of what Joseph was up to. That these men indeed are of the family and not the way they used to be. Evil actions, human choice, inextricable, mysterious balance, God's plan. Guilt on, change evidence. Third, reconciliation with others must be pursued. Maybe not altogether helpful, but there's a chapter change in our English Bibles. Judah makes this impassioned plea. And then we're struck with the chapter, the vision. Imagine it's not there. Jesus just poured out his heart. Verse 1, then Joseph could not control himself. Before all those who said, leave me. And his weeping and cries of joy, perhaps mixed with sorrow, the whole, the whole history are heard in Pharaoh's house. And then comes verse three. I'm just. Oh, for an image of their faces. I am Joseph. They're left speechless but dismayed. They can only imagine the payback to come. But Joseph shines. He shines in the theological heart of the story. Can we look at it again? Genesis 45, five through, 4 through 8. Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. 
And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You want to know how grace is operative in your life and there's genuine change? The one that has harmed you the most and somehow there's an opportunity for reconciliation, you can somehow find Jesus so operative in you that you're comforting them. That's the miracle of grace. You're comforting them. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. The famine's been in the land for two years and there are five years left. God sent me before you. It was not you who sent me, but God. So face this passage today. What's your worst betrayal in your history, in your story? Who's wounded you? Who's exacted more than a pound of flesh? And to this day, there's still some degree to which you hold on to it. How will you ever move beyond that? You have to take your shoe from Joseph and get above the choice, humanly, you sold me to, God sent me. You have to look at it from the providence, big picture, Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for good. That's the only way that you can find a heart like Joseph's, grace, magnanimity, I follow Ken Sandy's blog, my, as you know, mentor in all things peacemaking. And I recently read one of his blogs where he shared a letter by a prisoner. And it wonderfully illustrates the point. Ken writes, Busiga, Peter, Simon, passed the long hours in his prison cell dreaming about how he would murder the man who sent him there. But before he could put his plot into action, God intervened in a dramatic way. And here is what Busiga wrote to me. This is a prisoner in his cell who has contemplated Upon release, murdering the man who helped put him there. Brother Chen, praise the Lord. God is great. God is able and God is too merciful to me. I, Busiga Peter Simon of Fort Portugal, Uganda, thank God for he has a purpose for me. I'm not an accident to be in prison today. Behind it, God has a reason. I also thank the prison's authority for having kept me safely for almost six years, for in only three weeks I go out to be a free man. If all goes well, the Lord is my helper, I will attend university and pursue a divinity course. My wish is to serve God. Before I sat through your course, RW360, Relational Wisdom, I had a horrible, unrepentant, and unforgiving heart. If I would have been released earlier, by now I would be on death row. 
because I had planned to go and teach my accuser a lesson. I was going to set ablaze his house and be on guard with a gun to make sure that not even a rat or a lizard escapes. What unrepentant and unforgiving heart I had. But I praise God to prolong my sentence in prison and worked upon me through your horse by revealing scriptures that convicted and proved me more guilty than those I was going to heal. I praise God to prolong my sentence in prison and worked upon me through your force by revealing scriptures that convicted and proved me more guilty than those I was going to kill. God cleansed my heart with his blood, which he shed on the cross 2,000 years ago. He changed my heart and thoughts. I forgave my accuser and asked God to forgive me too. I now have peace in my mind because I no longer hold my accuser in my prison. He will be filled with great amazement when he sees me kneeling before him, seeking reconciliation with him next month when I go to him. Until then, I am urging others to trust in Jesus and believe his gospel and discover the secret of peace. When I go out from prison, I plan to introduce your horse to my church in Fort Portugal so that many Christians can attend. Because when they attend, it, in big number, there will be peace and harmony in the church and our country. To see a Simon. God uses even our evil actions to ensure the success of his blessing plan. Guilt owned, change evidence, reconciliation pursued. Fourth, Promises of blessing must be trusted. Promises of blessing must be trusted. <laughs> One can only imagine, after all those years of thinking, <laughs> Joseph did. And the brothers come back and say, Joseph lies. The text said his heart went cold. Came as near fainting as he come, but he revived. And in chapter 46, he sets out with the whole family, Lot, Stock, and Barrel, on the third of these journeys, taking the whole plan to Egypt. But look at the top of 46. He stops on the way in Beersheba, a place of worship for his ancestors. And there, text tells us he offers sacrifices. He prays. He worships. Here is another evidence of change. Blessings bearer becoming a more and more God-centered man. Building altars. What's he up to here? I'll tell you what he's up to. He knows his ancestors' history. Abraham erred in going to Egypt. Isaac was prevented from going to Egypt. Here's another threat to Blessing's plan. The whole clan, 70 strong, 
are leaving the land of promise. There's not going to be a single person left in the promised land, part of the massive patriarchal promises of blessing. Jacob wants to be sure he's getting it right. Truth, I cannot tell you how many nights this woman and I have laid in bed, this is our practice, and we're praying and saying, is Idaho where you want us to go? Because we don't know what you're going to do there. We have no idea how this thing's going to work out, but you have single-handedly taken every other option off the table. When you don't know what God wants you to do, you build your altar in your Beersheba and say, whatever it is, I need to know that you're going to go with me. And God shows up again and tells him just that. Look at verses 3 and 4 of 46. God spoke to, notice, Israel, his new name. God fights. In a vision of the night, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. Always a good response when God starts talking to you. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. God himself has come from Oxford, Mississippi, with the Jim and Angela Davis family. He's here with them. Already engineering, planning, preparing to take them and you into what he has for the future. Don't be afraid. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and don't miss this. I'll bring you up again. You'll be dead, but Joseph will be the last one to close your eyes. We'll look at that next week, Lord willing. But you'll be back. Few more precious promises than Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you or forsake you. Dear ones, I've been doing this since I was converted in 1974. Trust me, life in Jesus is a perpetual test of trusting in God's promises. I went to Idaho with another wife back in 98, having no idea what God would do, and she went with us. And one of the reasons why you and I are going there in this thing now, you and I are doing in God's providence, is because he was faithful then. It will be no different. Whatever the twists and turns and the ups and downs, the frat last great test is death. And we will next week look at Jacob's death and Joseph's and how they are buoyed by the promises of God at that great test. By the way, 70 go down to Egypt, 
How many come out 430 years later in the Exodus? Over two million. Over two million. Descendants, as many as the stars in the sky, is where this plan is going, and your sin and my sin will never, ever derail it. God always acts in this inscrutable balance between the human and the divine to accomplish his blessing plan. Job's own change evidence, reconciliation pursued, promises trusted. How are you doing? Hanging on by a slender thread, don't let go, grab a promise, pursue peace with someone that God has prompted you about. Hang on to whatever change. A bruised reed, he won't break. A smoldering wick, he won't snuff out. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. Own what you must own today. And repent. Believe Jesus died, buried, raised, and ascended on you, for you, and obeyed the gospel. Oh, Father, have mercy upon us as Kurt prayed in the pastoral prayer. Oh, we have Jesus. We're going to sing it right now. We've left the hellbound race behind if we haven't, anybody here who hasn't, Lord, help them. Help them reach out to me, someone else here, for help of how to get in the race that I'll preach about on the 12th, from Hebrews 12, and to run the race set before with eyes fixed on Jesus and never looking back. Grant us more and more changes as our God-centered people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.